Good morning. Um, if you've been with us for a little while, you know we're preaching through Romans, the book of Romans. And um, just to catch you up a little bit, Romans 7 uh, is Paul's, I mean, his, his expression of the frustration of living right now. He expresses that he's frustrated that what he wants to do, he doesn't do. What he doesn't want to do, that's what he ends up doing. And he brings, boils us down to a conflict inside of him with, the, um, with the, what he calls the flesh, the anti-God, the God-allergic um, existence of him so that's, that's inside of him. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he cries out in desperation at the end, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's how he ends that chapter. In chapter 8, the beginning of it is contrasting the indwelling flesh, that anti-God, with the indwelling spirit who, will, uh, who wages war against our God allergy, who, who transforms us from within, um, who, and who makes us, uh, as Paul says, uh, it, the, the point is that we would fulfill the law, all the righteous requirements of the law, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, through us. So, um, so Paul says the spirit wages war and pushes out the flesh and, uh, and to the point that we would be holy people, that we would be uh, children of the living God, full sons, ad- uh, adopted and, uh, and standing to inherit all that the Father has to give us. Um, so he says that's what's happening now. And then in the, the, rest, uh, the middle part of chapter 8, which we're talking about today, uh, Paul talks about our future. He talks about where we're headed as uh, full adopted sons of God. Um, that, uh, and he tells us where we're going. Um, because, uh, because Paul knows that we are hope-based creatures, and our hope, what we hope for, will determine how we live right now. Um, he knows that, that, uh, that we need high hopes and deep groans. If we're going to be the type of people, and first part of chapter 8 says, the people who fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. In this part of chapter 8, he says, that high hopes and deep groans make us people who are conformed to the image of the Son of God. That is, to, that we're going to look more and more like our older brother, Jesus. So, that's where we're headed today. That's where we've been. Um, would you pray with me? Father, wake us up. Um, we thank you that you have given to your children, uh, Holy Spirit, to, um, to groan with us and groan for us, to, uh, to draw us into your presence, to push out, to wage war against everything in us that remains against your work. So give us a big hope today that would pull us through life and through our sufferings. Amen. Uh, there's a, a new war movie out that uh, some of you guys may have seen. You've, all of you, I'm sure, have heard of it. It's gotten a lot of buzz. It's called Dunkirk. It's the story of, um, uh, of the World War II evacuation of France by the British. So in, um, in war, towards the beginning of World War II, uh, Hitler and Germany are marching across, uh, across Europe, and, uh, and France keeps saying they're going to stop, they're going to stop. I mean, uh, England keeps saying they're going to stop, it'll be okay. Finally, they start threatening France 
And so England says they're not going to stop. They're going to keep going. So they send troops over real quickly, thinking that they'll fortify the French. They'll be able to keep the Germans from, uh, from overrunning France. They fail. The Germans um, push the, uh, the French and the British soldiers back, 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 all the way to the coast of France. And they, uh, they're, they're there. They've retreated all the way to Dunkirk. And uh, the goal is to get them out of France so that they can preserve the British army to fight again. Um, against, uh, against Germany and against the Axis powers. So they're at Dunkirk, and they're not that far away from Britain, right? It's just across the English Channel. Like, it's, it's far, but it's not that far. Like, people swim it on a dare, you know? It'd be like on the beach, like, yeah, I'll do it, and rip up and go. But it's a long way. Like, those people die because they didn't prepare. But it's, it is swimmable. People have swam the English Channel before. So it's not that far, but it's, it's far enough that there's 400,000 soldiers on this beach who can't be uh, gotten off. And the, and the large ships, the large British ships are scattered. Uh, the ones that do get there are being sunk by U-boats, German U-boats, um, and, and uh, stranding men in the water. It's just going really poorly. It's a desperate situation. They know if they can't get these men off, out of France, then they'll be taken by the German army, and they will have no forces to fight against the incursion of uh, this totalitarian regime that's, uh, that has aspirations to rule Europe and all the world eventually. So it's desperate times. This movie uh, depicts this struggle, and if you know the, if you know the story, uh, the British call in their civilian fleet, meaning they just say, hey, do you have a boat? Will you go across the channel and pick up some guys? I mean, that's really it. That's what they did. And, uh, and there, there were hundreds of just private fishermen and pleasure cruisers that just jumped in their boats and, and went across the English Channel and picked up soldiers and evacuated them back to Britain. And it literally probably saved Europe, that action, um, from being overrun uh, by German forces because they preserved the British Army to fight again. So one of the, in the movie, one of the stories that it follows is this, uh, this guy, this older gentleman, Mr. Dawson, who owns a boat, and the, the Navy comes and says, we need you, and he says, okay. And so he and his son uh, and this other young man uh, get on their boat, and they head, they take off, and they're going to Dunkirk to, um, to bring back these soldiers. Along the way, they come across a, um, a partially sunken a battleship with, one, with a lone soldier uh, sitting on the, the, the little part that hasn't sunken completely, no other men around, um, and so they ferry up to him, they pull him on board, and because they're British, they give him tea, and then they wrap him in a blanket. And they just keep going. They, they know they've got a lot more room on this boat, and they're going to go liberate, some, they're going to go rescue some more soldiers. But as soon as the soldier, who's very shell-shocked, right, uh, he's, he's been through a harrowing experience having his boat sunk, and he kind of wakes up to what's going on, he says, where are you going? You can't go to Dunkirk, turn back. We've got to go back to England. And they said, no, son, Mr. Dawson, the older gentleman, no, son, we've got to go get this army. We've got to go, um, we've got to go rescue him. He says, uh, we're going to die if we go that way. We have to go back to England. Mr. Dawson is committed to going and rescuing as many as he can. The soldier is committed to rescuing himself. That is the very basic struggle that Paul is addressing in this part of Romans 8. Your hope determines your life. The hope of Mr. Dawson 
the hope and his groaning, right? The deep groans and the high hopes. His deep groan is that, the, that this German military force will overrun all of Europe and, and, uh, and take away very basic human freedoms and destroy life. That is a deep groan, and his high hope is that if we rescue this army, we can preserve for another day, for another year, for a lifetime maybe even, the freedoms that we've already worked so hard to gain. We can preserve life if we go and risk our lives now. He's got a high hope, but the soldier, and a lot of compassion to him, right? He's been through a lot that day. The soldier has very low groanings and very shallow hopes. He wants to preserve for today his own life. So he's thinking about one life and one day, and Mr. Dawson is thinking about millions of lives over the rest of the years. And it motivates two very different lifestyles, two very different actions. The soldier wants to turn back and save his own skin. Mr. Dawson wants to go forward and risk his life. The quality and the size of your hope determine your life. There is an author whose name I can't pronounce. Maybe somebody knows it. It's the author of The Little Prince. He's French. Somebody knows it. Joel Bostrom had it like that in the last service. No, Antoine de Saint something else. They called him Saint X. I'm not even going to try it. It's uh, it's less embarrassing just to admit I can't do it. So he wrote, uh, he's the author of The Little Prince and and other uh, children's and young adult books. Um, But he says this uh, about hope. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. If you want to build a boat, don't drum up people to do the work and give them tasks. Teach those people to long for the, uh, for the endless immensity of the sea. Give them something so big that they have to lo- start living towards that. that they, they have to, of their own accord, take action towards that longing, towards that love. That's exactly what our God does for us when he gives us Romans 8. He teaches us to live for the endless immensity of our hope, of our future, of eternity. We're hope-based creatures, and like I said, we're going to live lives in accordance with our hopes. Okay, I didn't do this one at Lula because I thought it would go flat, but real quick. Not because they're old. Where's Tracy? Not because they're old, because they're different. Different congregations, that's fine. (laughs) Different people have different hopes, and and it causes different actions, right? High hopes are going to lead to a high life. Low hopes, small hopes are going to lead to a life of low character. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. At the end of the first movie, A New Hope, they're, they're, they, uh, they've rescued Princess Leia. And, uh, and, and the resistance, the rebellion says, we need you to help. We've got to go destroy this, this evil that's going to take over the galaxy. You've got to help us destroy the Death Star. What does Luke do? This is easy. What does Luke do, Wilson? Boom. He does use the force. Thank you. He uses the force. But does he go or leave? He goes. Why does he go? Does he have a high hope or a low hope? He's got a really high hope. I want to deliver the galaxy from oppression. If the galaxy is oppressed, people die. That's bad for life, right? He's got a deep groan and a high hope. What does Han Solo do? 
Yeah. A death mark is a hard thing to live with, Captain Solo, we understand. He takes the money. He's got to go pay off a debt because he's got a, death, he's got a, uh, he's got a bounty to pay off to Jabba the Hutt. He is worried about his life today, and he takes off. Luke is worried about all of life for a long time to come, and he risks. Who do you want to be? Just like gut level. We all want to be Luke, right? We all want to go risk. We all want to give our lives. You don't. You want to be Han. That's cool. <laughs> He's really good looking. So I understand. The quality of your hope is going to determine the, the quality of your life. But we, uh, we as people, we don't like hope. We are allergic to hope because it is risky. Hope is very risky, especially for people who are kind of fairly well off. Middle class, upper class people don't, care, don't, don't need a lot of hope because a lot of the things we want can be gotten right in front of us. You look at an oppressed people and hope for the future flourishes, right? You look at suffering people and hope for, for eternity, for what's to come is a major part of life. But hope is risky. Our passage says in verse 26 that the that Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And one of our weaknesses is that we can't deliver ourselves, that we, we don't have the life that we want right now. And that is a weakness to depend on hope. It puts you in a weak position. What happens when we cut short deep groanings or high hopes? Briefly, what happens if you cut short one of those? Let's say you keep deep groanings and you say this life is broken. I am broken. I, uh, I'm, uh, I can't fix myself. But your hopes don't rise high. If you keep low hopes, you know what, what that produces? Despair. And despair breeds for a little hopes. It breeds addiction. Right? If I can just, I've got deep groanings, deep pain, but, if, but I can turn to the bottle. Or I could turn to shopping. Or I could turn to uh, this website. You see, that's a, that's a symptom of low hope, of little hopes. So deep groaning with little hope produces addiction. And we know that addictive lifestyles destroy everyone around you. What happens if you have um, shallow groanings, little groanings, but high hopes? Things aren't that bad. I think I can get it. And I want a lot. I have a lot that I want to achieve. I'll have a lot that I want to get. Well, you get petty and entitled, right? I'm not that bad off, and I can get a whole lot of stuff. I can, I can achieve a lot. I have really high hopes, and the groaning is very shallow. You get petty and entitled. So if you, if you shortcut any one, either one of those, it leads to a life of, uh, of death, ultimately. Hope, living with hope is painful. Even the Proverbs say, hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's a hard life to, to hold on to hope and say, what I want most is not going to be in front of me. Tom Wright says this about hope. He says, hope for the Christian is not wishful thinking or mere blind optimism. It's not wishful thinking or mere blind optimism. It's a mode of knowing, a mode within which new things are possible. Options are not shut down. New creation can happen. You see, he's talking about hope as this anchor point in the future that pulls us along in the present. 
Hope is not mere blind optimism or wishful thinking. Hope, Christian and 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 uh, in Scripture, is a very uh, an absolutely certain and concrete anchor point in the future that pulls us like a winch pulls uh, pulls something towards the truck that holds the winch. It pulls us along life. It pulls us through life. This sure and certain hope. So, how does God set before us? a longing for the immensity of the sea. He gives us in this passage a bigger salvation. He talks about our future and and the future of this world. He says that creation even now groans as in the pains of childbirth. That is something great is coming. That's new life is going to happen. and And it belongs to creation because creation, he says, will also be liberated from its bondage to decay just like God's children will. What does it mean that, that, why is that such great news? Why does Paul say, you know what you need right now? If you don't want to live a petty life like Han Solo, do you know what you have to have? You got to know that this creation has a future. You have to know that your body is going to be resurrected. That doesn't make a lot of sense on first blush. It seems like plenty to just say that we're going to escape this shell of our body and have a disembodied, quote unquote, spiritual future floating on clouds one day. But he knows that the content of our hope determines our life. Why is it better this way? Why is it better this way? This is a really petty example. But here goes. I love to mow the grass. I love it. I like the, I like the process of it. It's nice, right? I get, to be, I get to kind of be quiet and like let my mind wander a little bit. Um, But what I love most is when I mow the grass, no one can undo that for a number of days. All right, like a week. That looks good. I did that. I completed that, and it is done, and I finished it. Do you know what that that is a little hint of? A longing to be freed from vanity, from corruption, from decay. Paul talks about these words, corruption and and decay, that, that... that creation is in bondage to these things. It's the same word um, that, uh, that the, uh, the teacher of wisdom in Ecclesiastes says when he says, vanity of vanity, everything is vanity, or meaningless, meaningless, that you start the work and then you just got to do it over again. Right? He goes through that litany of things. The, the, the waters run to the sea, but then they're replenished at the front. Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever is going to get fixed or solved completely. When I see a well-mowed lawn, that is God tapping me and saying, you long for more than a disembodied future. You long for creation and your body to be freed from the bondage to corruption. You long to mow that lawn and for it to stay mowed. I long to paint something and the paint won't ever chip or peel. I long for my work to be meaningful and permanent. God talks about a creation and a humanity reclaimed. Reclaimed. If our future was was the bad guys get cut off, or the bad parts get sliced out, or everything gets burned up by a fire, then all of a sudden... Things take on a very different color. What, have you ever had, most of us have had a sibling 
or a parent, I mean, excuse me, a, a, a friend or a child be, uh, go towards a prodigal lifestyle, right? It's just a word we Christians use to mean they went off the deep end. And things got crazy between you. And you don't have a relationship anymore. If our future is a cutting off of all bad things and like a disembodiedness, then that relationship just gets cut off, right? That just gets pushed away and done away with. But that's not what you and I long for when relationships are broken. When you have a child who walks away from the family, when you have a friend who abandons a long friendship with you, when you have a sibling who's estranged from the family, you don't long for them to be cut off and for you to be free of that burden. You long for reconciliation, for the what's broken to be made whole. You long for that relationship to be freed from bondage to decay and corruption. That's the hope that God gives us in this passage. That's why it's so critical that we see that our bodies and this creation and ourselves have a future of purity a future of wholeness, because right now, that means I can hope for that relationship to be cured, to be healed. How frustrating is it for, as, a, as a doctor to see the same patient over and over and over again? Oh good, your cancer's in relapse. Nope, here it came back. I used all the skills and powers and knowledge that I have, and it helped for a time, but now you're sick We long for our work to be permanent and meaningful, impactful, to bring health and wholeness. And that's the hope that we're given in this passage. That our work right now has a future. That our lives are going somewhere. When we groan deeply and hope strongly, It produces a certain kind of person. Paul says in this passage that that deep groaning and high hopes make us end, uh, that, that we are being conformed to the image of the Son of God. We are being conformed to the image of the Son of God. That makes us Christ like, that makes us resemble our big brother. Hebrews 2 talks about this in Jesus. I'm sorry, Hebrews 12 says to us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with patience, with eager patience, as Paul says in our passage. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before Jesus caused him to march through the pain and the shame of the cross. His hope pulled him through a life of loving sacrifice and a death that freed you and me. His future glory and your future joy was enough to carry him through that immense pain. And when we do the same, we're Christ-like. We're Christ-like. We get to, uh, at this point, we get to, to turn to, to God's table, the Lord's Supper. I love that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and every time we do, it's like looking at a gem from a different angle. 
Um, sometimes we need this gem to be beautiful because, uh, because it represents our forgiveness, that Christ died instead of us and we're clean and we're forgiven. Sometimes we need this meal to, rem- to remind us that God provides sustenance for us so that we can continue living today and tomorrow. And sometimes we need this meal to remind us that we are heading to a feast where we're going to sit down at the same table with our Heavenly Father and be welcomed there with all of His people from every tribe, tongue, language, and people group. And that's what I want us to hear in it today, that we have a future, that we have a feast that we are moving towards. And so we can live towards that feast now. I'm reading a book, kind of. Hank and I are both listening to a book um, that, that I love. It's called Peter and the Star Catchers. And this, uh, it's, a, it's a pre-story to Peter Pan. So how did Peter Pan get there? All this kind of stuff. It's a lot of fun. Um, but th- this passage, as I read it this week, or rather as I heard it, I'm listening to it, audio, uh, uh, it stuck out to me as just a beautiful representation of, uh, of what we're talking about here. So, the quick setting. Uh, Alf is a, uh, a dock worker. And he is just a crusty, old, grumpy, old dock worker. And he is, uh, his job is to load uh, this cargo onto the ship. But what he doesn't know is the cargo that he's loading, this big, gigantic trunk, is full of pixie dust. So it has an effect on him. Alf was a simple man of simple wants. What he hoped to get from life was food that was soft enough to chew, a place to sleep out of the rain, and some grog now and again. Alf had never known true happiness, and he didn't expect to. He had very low hopes. And so he was not ready, not ready at all, for what happened when his rough, calloused hands touched the trunk. First he felt it, a warmth starting in his hands, but quickly moving up his arms and down his back and into his legs. And everywhere the warmth uh, went, it was wonderful, like stepping into a bath. In an instant, the pain in his bent old spine, the throbbing pain that he'd lived with since almost his first day on the docks, was gone. So was the aching weariness in his legs, gone. But there was more. There was a smell. It was flowers, new grass in a meadow right after a spring rain, a fresh orange being peeled. It was cinnamon and honey and bread just baked and pulled from the oven. And another smell. Even, even more wonderful than all the others, though Alf couldn't place it. Like nighttime, he thought. Alf could see light now, swirling around his head, colors, sparkles, moving to music, dancing it to the sound of, yeah, it was bells, tiny ones by the sound of them. And it was a sweet and joyful sound, though Alf could hear something else in it, something that seemed to be trying to tell Alf something He strained to hear it. He wanted to hear it. That's the taste that we are invited to today. That's a taste that caused Alf to move towards the trunk any chance he got. It's a taste that caused Alf to become a hero of the poor and the needy later in our story. It's a taste of hope that will change you. That will give you high hopes that lead to your high life we get to we get to enjoy that this morning at the lord's supper 
to this is, as we say, the Lord's Supper. It's not Rock Creek's Supper. It's not the Supper of the Presbyterian.